You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Nita. Hi there, Bob. How you doing? It's good. It's good? Yeah. And, and you? You're, and you're good as well? Uh, yeah, I'm no. okay. I'm okay. Uh, it's all good. Uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Nita Crawford, uh, professor of political science at Boston University. Also, I believe, co-director of the Costs of War Project, which is at Brown, where you used to teach, I think. It's also at BU. It's also BU. So it's a co, you're co-director of a co-project. And we're going to talk about war, uh, including why it happened so much and how to, how to make it happen less. Um, I wanted to start off though with the Costs of War Project. Just give people a sense of uh, the magnitude uh, sometimes of the uh, of the of the suffering Um, you. I I mean, one thing the Call of War Project does, I gather, is it tries to get a clear idea of deaths and other casualties and so on um, for various wars, which I know can be a difficult uh, business. Um, And I gather you're you know, you're. pretty conservative about it. I mean, I think, I think you, you, you all try to be uh, fastidious in, in, uh, in assessing the sources. Uh, and, but I wanted to get a sense. So like take the Iraq war, which, which the U S launched in 2001. Um, what, like on the civilian side, do you have, I, I, I should have, I should have warned you in advance. I was going to ask for numbers. Just tell me if, if some, some things don't come to mind, but, um, is there a number for like a rough number for number of just civilians killed as a result of the invasion? I think about 182,000, 184,000. Uh, there is really no good count because um, uh, there are very few official sources and that counting went up and down in terms of its reliability and frequency. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's way more than uh, Americans killed, I'm sure. Um. Although I gather even even that number can be not, not a good representation of the suffering in the sense that I gather one feature of modern war is that uh, with a modern army like America's, there are more people who survive with permanent impairments than might have been in the case in like World War II uh, because the medical care wasn't as good. More of them just would have flat out died. So total casualties is, is kind of a higher number relative to deaths than it used to be, I guess. Is that right? right? There's... Um- tens of thousands of Americans who've been injured th- that were counting about 32,000 or maybe 40,000 Americans have been injured about 7,000 have been killed in both war zones. And, um, there both, both are war people, zones meaning Iraq and Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course the United States is engaged in other operations around the world, um, in, in about 80 countries that are part of this global war on terror. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's notable. I, I mean, do you, do you have at hand the number of military uh, Iraqis, uh, non-American military killed in Iraq or a rough idea of it? Um, no, I don't have that in my head, but I'll tell you that uh, the United States and the Afghans have stopped publicizing the number of Afghan military and police killed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the number for Iraqi uh, military and police killed, though I mm-hmm. imagine that's in the tens of thousands. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. I mean, as as uh, grave as the numbers are on the American side, how they often are, are a small fraction of the overall number of deaths caused by the wars. Right. And you also have to keep in mind that uh, when people are injured in Afghanistan or Iraq, they don't have the capacity to fly or they generally don't fly those people to Germany or the United States um, so that mm-hmm. Afghan or Iraqi military aren't getting the same kind of health care. Mm-hmm. Now, I would imagine uh, drone strike numbers are especially uh, difficult to come by because, for one thing, not all of the strikes are a matter of public record, as I understand it, right? I mean, I mean, drone strikes from America, there are CIA strikes and there are military strikes. And, and is it the case that, that the CIA strikes we kind of don't talk about or something, whereas the military strikes are technically a matter of public record, or do I have that? Well, the military strikes occur in the named war zones, and the Mm -hmm. drone strikes that are targeted assassinations occur in places like Pakistan, which Pakistan is really part of the Afghanistan war, but they occur in in, uh, Pakistan, and they're not part of U.S. ground operations for the most part, and those are CIA. And um, yes, we don't know the numbers of those strikes, though. Um, there has been good reporting by sources close to the U.S. government, like Long War Journal, or more independent journalists like the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. And uh, New America Foundation also keeps track. Mm-hmm. So there are people tracking those strikes. Uh, we also don't know in some cases, like Yemen, whether a U.S. strike is a drone strike or a fixed-wing aircraft or some other strike. Mm-hmm. So we'll find, people will find uh, the remnants of uh, explosive explosive debris, and mm-hmm. they'll find a U.S. part, and they'll say that's a U.S. weapon. But let's say it's a Hellfire. They don't know if that Hellfire missile has come from a drone or from a fixed-wing aircraft. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just... Say there was an airstrike. Mm -hmm. I see. Now, speaking of Yemen, there's there's been a lot of publicity lately. uh, Well, over the last few years about the Saudi role, there was a Saudi-led big military initiative in Yemen, which uh, the U.S. gave logistical support to. Recently, the Biden administration has has said that they will end support for what what they call offensive Saudi Operations. I, I, I'm curious. Have the drones, the, the U.S. drone strikes, been ongoing during the Saudi uh, intervention, or are those? Because you used to hear more about the U.S. Uh, strikes in Yemen. Are, have, those have, have they, diminished in number. Uh huh. What about more broadly? Have have uh, drone strikes? Again, I, uh, information is limited. Uh, but is your sense that number of drone strikes has declined in recent years, say Trump administration compared to Obama or anything? Do we know anything about that? Yes, they've declined. They uh, have. Right. And I, but they're, they, they wax and wane in terms of the frequency of the use of drones, but okay. they've declined overall. Okay. Um, so I know you, you have some ideas about, um, about how we might make war uh, less common and, some of your ideas in in one of the, the – uh, there are a couple of papers you've written that have come to my attention. One is called Institutionalizing Passion in World Politics, Fear and Empathy. Another one called Homo Politicus and Argument. 
nearly all the way down persuasion in politics. Some of your thinking begins with a critique of what is called realism in, in international relations theory and foreign policy. Now, realism is funny because it has both a descriptive side and a prescriptive side. So uh, not all not all ideologies do. Not all IR descriptive theories have a prescriptive side. But as it happens, we use the term realism to apply to both. You are talking about, I think, the descriptive side, the kind of realist way of looking at how the world works, right? That's that's what you have an issue with. That's right. And yeah. and how how would you uh, well how would you describe realism first of all before you begin get into your critique of it how would you describe this this descriptive part of realism? Well, there are really two strands of realism. There's a kind of classical realism where uh, you know we associate that with Hobbes or even before him Thucydides or more recently in the 20th century Hans Morgenthau, and those people believed that. Uh, the principles of world politics hadn't changed in the, because human nature hasn't changed and that um, people are aggressive and the best way to get along in the world without uh, a world hegemon is to be prepared to defend yourself. And uh, you couldn't trust the other side to keep their commitments. So you always had to have a sword handy. Um, so as Hobbes says, covenants without the sword are but mere words. Mm-hmm. And I I think that this is actually basically the um, belief system that is dominant. Uh, and that leads to the prescriptions that we see in policy, which are keep large standing armies and be ready to use them to defend yourself. Okay. What is the kind of realism that's not classical? There's the structural realists who basically focus on the absence of a hegemon, and they're not so much interested in human nature. Uh, they're just saying there's no world hegemon, so it's ever, up to everybody to defend themselves. And the other thing they say is that what you do in that instance is you balance power against others. So they're more focused on this. Uh, well, they're fairly focused on the question of balance of power, that is, uh, if there are two states that are hedge or large, um, great powers, they'll try to balance each other, and other states will sort of line up on one side or the other to try to bandwagon with, uh, let's say, a closer power. And that uh, you can only balance one of two ways: you can balance by um, developing your internal economic system, you know, industrialize in the you know. 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, or, um, you know, increase the number of people you have under arms, or you can balance by getting allies. And that's what states do. That's the, their description. And, and again, for them, just as with the old-fashioned classical realists, nothing much in the world changes. And the focus is on political power and military force. So, so both of these kinds of realism it sounds like, or to some extent, saying kind of it's a jungle out there. It, it's it's a tough world. Uh, people use throw their their weight around. The way you you deal with that is through force of your own. Yes. And um, I, I gather there's uh, there's a kind of a a rationalist uh, dimension to this in in the sense that 
I mean, it's a very kind of game theoretical uh, dimension to one or both where they envision the leaders of the countries as kind of doing what is in their the the, the, the rational self interest of the state. Do I have do I have that yeah, right? Yeah, basically, uh, I wouldn't say that um, they're they're cons- internally consistent in this sense. You're right in that they believe that people are purposive actors and they're going to do the best that they can instrumentally to to mm-hmm. achieve their goals, but they're actually not rooted in rationality in the sense that they think everybody's afraid. And in fact, they themselves, the realists are generally fearful. Okay. Mm -hmm. So at the root of all of this is emotion. That is fear of the other side. And then liberals critique this and say, okay, if we realize that fear is at the root of what um, is happening between states, they're arming because they're afraid they're making alliances because they're afraid of a world where they can be attacked and no one's going to come to defend them, then what we ought to do is also realize that when we arm ourselves, we make ourselves more threatening to the other. Because even though we're arming in Mm self-defense, or we think we're arming in self-defense, we want to tell people that we're arming in self-defense, it's hard to to say whether my arming is defensive. If you're looking at me and I've I've got a shotgun, we, we don't know why I've got the shotgun. I could be aggressive. So that's what they call the security dilemma. What one party does to defend itself can be perceived as threatening by the other. And then when you have a security dilemma, each side can keep arming, they believe, defensively. Mm-hmm. And that can lead to uh, escalation of an arms race and perhaps even war through miscalculation. Mm-hmm. And so there seems to be a tendency, I mean, especially once you consider a nation an adversary um, to interpret ambiguous behavior that in principle could be defensive or offensive as offensive. Right. I mean, I mean, does that seem to be like on balance, the, the, the direction of the bias that when you're looking at other States that are not your allies and, and, and they're arming or they're arming proxies in, in what to them might be a buffer state. It's an adjacent state say, I mean, let's take like Iran and Syria. So, Iran, for historical reasons, uh, I think feels uh, defensive. They were the victims of uh, a war that was started by Iraq. Syria was the only nation in the region that that uh, was their ally during that. So I, I think there's reason to believe that that uh, they would like to keep this uh, friendly Syrian regime in place for defensive reasons and would not mind having proxies there or their own forces there. That's at least plausible. But it seems to me the, the the standard interpretation of that in the region, uh, for the most part, and in the United States, is as offensive, right? I mean, first of all, I'm wondering for, if you yes, agree for, for two for two reasons. One is um, it's difficult to determine whether a weapon is defensive or offensive. It's how it's intended to be used inside a military doctrine. Mm-hmm. A gun is a gun is a gun. Mm-hmm. A tank is a a tank. Um, and the other reason is we have in what they call uh, what in psychology is called uh, an attribution bias, where when uh, we look at others and we're trying to attribute their motives, what we're trying to figure out is do they intentionally do this thing because of who they are? Um, do they arm because they're aggressive? Or are they arming because of the circumstance that they're in? 
Okay. So, um, have they, uh, acquired nuclear weapons because they intend and are, uh, planning on harming us? Or have they acquired nuclear weapons because they're surrounded by hostile states? So the attribution bias that almost everybody has, which is to look at the thing that they're doing and not to uh, see something from another's perspective, gets in the way of um, sometimes accurate, maybe maybe it's not inaccurate, but sometimes accurate assessments of what the other's motives are. So when we're looking at an enemy and they're they're arming or something that's in principle ambiguous, uh, we are unlikely to attribute it to the circumstance they find themselves in and, and more likely to attribute it to just their fundamental nature. They're just aggressive. Correct. Um, and I, I'm wondering what your view is on the role of um, the, the motivations of individual politicians. Um, in other words, I mean, some, well, there's various actors in a country that might have an interest in stoking fear. I mean, Eisenhower, uh, I think your, your cost of war project is actually, does it bear Eisenhower's name? Am I right? Or, or is it? Yeah, it's, it started out as part of, uh, the Eisenhower Institute. Okay. So Eisenhower warned about the military industrial complex. Part of the idea is there, there might be industrial actors, arms makers who had an interest in war and, and might, for that reason, favor the stoking of fear. Certainly, sometimes it's in the interests of politicians, uh, to especially those who face popularity problems, to convince people that there's some big outside threat because that tends to make people rally around the flag. What is your assessment of how big a role that kind of thing plays? It's hard to say. I, I think that... Um before you even think about whether or not people are waging war to make money, you have to look at the, the reasons why they say they're waging war. And they often say they're waging war because they're afraid the other side's going to come at them. Mm-hmm. So they'll, um, they or they have come at them in the past. And so I take those seriously. But uh, what we don't want to forget is the ways that having a large military distorts the processes and values of democracy. And by that, I mean uh, a democracy and a representative democracy depends on having people who are uh, thinking clearly and are not driven by fear. But uh, when you have uh, a context in which fear is constantly being stoked or there's threat inflation, the prefrontal cortex tends to stop and instead we're our, our antenna are up for fearful stimuli. So no matter what the other side does, mm-hmm. we tend to look at them and see them as a threat. And so uh, I think one of the reasons why you see this pattern in the United States and other countries, but, but really clearly in the United States of constantly giving the military, whatever it asks for, it's at root caused by this, almost permanent sense of anxiety or fear about the outside world and the desire to, to use military force to get whatever it is you want. That is another aspect of militarism. So militarism is the idea that military force is effective, efficient, um, controllable. You can use it uh, precisely. It's, you can do things quickly and it's going to be cheaper than the alternatives. 
And so if you have that sort of militarist mindset, then you'll tend to say, okay, I'll give the military whatever they want. Uh, we need military industries. Oh, by the way, the military industrial actors are contributing heavy, heavily to my campaign. So I'm not going to look at that, that weapon system too closely because it provides jobs. And you tend to, to think that um, the risks of using military force are low. So you, you, you're not looking as critically at the kinds of things that could inadvertently get you into conflict. Okay. And, and then, as you said, your arming may make the other, the other side more likely to arm, which you then may interpret as, as offensive. Um, okay. So uh, just to touch back briefly to, to, um, realism, if there is indeed a prominent role for fear, then that's a problem right away with their paradigm of, uh, they're tending to view this in more game theoretical terms of, uh, states acting, um, rationally to defend their interests is that that's part of the idea well i i I don't think of it that way i mean i think of it more um that realism tends to make the world that they imagine okay that realism is a self-fulfilling prophecy Hmm. that what you believe then you tend to structure the world in that way and then um the action reaction cycle with potential adversaries tends to make them act the way you expected them to act. And so it's hard to get out of that cycle. Mm-hmm. But I take it you have ideas about how one, how we might get out of it. Yeah. Well, th- there are historically uh, conflicts that we've ended. And, you know, for example, take the cold war. Um, George Schultz died a couple of days ago. And one of the things that he was eulogized for is helping Reagan and the cold war. Well, that's a nice story, but George Schultz and Ronald Reagan didn't actually end the cold war. It was a complex process where changes in the Soviet union and the Eastern Bloc, and in the politics of Europe and the United States led to the end of the cold war. Now it's important that to, to realize that, if we'd had different leaders, it might not have turned out the same way. But these leaders were pushed by forces, political forces below them to lead uh, themselves into arms control negotiations, which ratcheted down the, the tensions, which allowed for more democratization. In other words, it's a, it's a complex process that uh, unfolded over um, probably 10, 20 years that led to the end of the Cold War. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, Ronald Reagan going to Mikhail Gorbachev and saying, hey, dude, tear down this wall. And Gorbachev uh, allows the wall to come down and the Cold War ends. The politics of getting to there was grassroots organizing, um, anti-nuclear movements, mm-hmm. democratization movements, human rights movements, pushing for changes, economic change in r- the Soviet Union, and um, that's how you end a forty-year-long or nearly fifty-year-long Cold War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember this uh, drama called "The Day After." I think on ABC there was a, there was a TV program that it was a special 
uh, and it was a dramatization, and I guess it was the day after a nuclear attack or something. And I remember it kind of freaked the Reagan administration out. Like they wanted to, they were worried at how afraid it was going to make people of nuclear war or something. And they had a whole public relations offensive designed to uh, calm people down or something. But that's the kind of pressure you're talking about, I take it. Right. So the the day after occurred in the early 1980s, but this is after um, already a large anti-nuclear movement had been working in the, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, which created pressure uh, and changed the culture. Right. So you, you see uh, a referendum on what was called the nuclear weapons freeze Mm-hmm. And you, and this occurred in in Western Mass, and then uh, a year or two later, in several states, saying the United States should freeze nuclear weapons production, testing, and deployment, and this should be bilateral with the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. right? So in the U.S., there's pressure for arms control, and eventually disarmament, and there's also pressure in Europe. For the same thing, to end the deployment of the what were called the Euro missiles, the cruise and Pershing two missiles, and in the Eastern Bloc, there are people who want to end uh, Soviet control of the satellites, like Poland and East Germany. They want democracy, and they're pushing for that. Mm-hmm. And the two movements are actually coordinating. Right, they're talking to each other. How can we help you? How can how can you help us? And they're not, um, uh, it's not like a uh, spies coordinating. It's very public. We're saying we all want a better, safer world. Mm -hmm. And we're going to put pressure on our governments to get that. Hmm. So so the day after occurs in a context where there's already been a lot of organizing that laid the groundwork for people to be receptive to arguments about the dangers of nuclear war. Mm Mm-hmm. So grassroots activism can matter. And in fact, this this uh, Yemen uh, policy change by Biden, apparent policy change, hasn't really been implemented yet. But um, that comes after years of grassroots organizing. And even during the Trump administration, I think there were some votes in Congress that uh, I guess had he not wound up vetoing one of them might have led to action sooner on this front. But the, but I know there's been a lot of grassroots organizing on this issue. And presumably that's the reason that it's kind of the first thing that that uh, the Biden administration did coming out of the gate. Um, now, I but it, it sounds like uh, you're saying these things can be more effective when um, there are kind of partner organizers on the other side of the fence. Uh, kind of hard to arrange, I guess, under some circumstances. Uh, I, I'm thinking now of, you know, the next thing you would hope might be on Biden's plate is uh, restoring the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, but I don't know how much kind of civil society action there is in Iran. So I guess, it, I mean, in some, maybe, maybe, you know, more and maybe there is, uh, I don't know. But, I'm not an expert yeah. on Iran. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I guess it's the, the idea is nice if you can get it coordinated civil society activity, coordinated grassroots activism on both sides. Yeah. Um, the, uh, now you have ideas about, um, I guess increasing the role of empathy um, yeah. in, in politics. You want to talk about that, and maybe you want to start out by talking about what you mean by empathy, because there's kind of cognitive empathy, which is which is kind of perspective taking, understanding the way 
you know, people view the world, but but often people use the empathy refer, to refer to more an, an emotional kind of empathy, kind of, you know, feeling their pain. And these things are related, but they're not exactly the same thing. So when you use the word empathy, what, what do you have? What do you have in mind? I think I'm talking about both and um, you need perspective taking to understand, uh, you know, as I said, to to help you, for instance, to get out of the attribution bias, right. That Mm -hmm. you might have, right. So you have to understand what the other might be thinking and feeling. And uh, it also increases your capacity to find solutions together, right. If you can each have empathy for each other, that, that gets at the underlying needs. Now, um, you, you have to build up to that. You know, it doesn't magically occur. So you have to have a relationship that, that builds so that it's possible to understand the other, um, you know, either by understanding their histories or uh, their individual histories or their society's histories. Mm-hmm. And, um, with empathy, it's possible to um, basically slow yourself down so that you can start thinking about the relationship in a different way. When you lack empathy and you're operating out of fear, as I said, you've shut down the prefrontal cortex and you're in your amygdala, right? You're in mm-hmm. the fear part, mm-hmm. which moves faster, right? Um, and we And we can institutionalize that fear. Or we can institutionalize more reflective means of dealing with each other, which are more empathic. And so I'm suggesting that in politics, we've mostly institutionalized fear, and that's what realism is, right? The institutionalization of fear. And you can see that in standing armies and in foreign policies that are more or less aggressive. And um, you can institutionalize empathy um, in, in processes like diplomacy, right? But this diplomacy doesn't have to occur only at the state level. It can occur at the level of people. And is that, uh, is, are there famous cases of, of that where that, or that per se has been influential? Well, there is the case of, uh, the negotiations in South Africa toward the end of apartheid. you probably recall that many people thought that, uh, the apartheid state would not end peacefully. That um, because the black majority, more than, you know, uh, I think it's more than 85% of the population was black. And at the time, uh, uh, the uh, apartheid regime headed by P.W. Bota, then later F.W. de Klerk, were highly militarized. Um, they had... Um, armored vehicles in the townships, had invaded their neighbor, uh, Angola, were occupying uh, Namibia, or then called Southwest Africa, uh, had fomented unrest in Mozambique, that this, you know, that when change occurred, it would be violent, that the apartheid government would not give up power to the majority Mm -hmm. peacefully. And uh, the ANC, the African National Congress, might also be aggressive. So people anticipated war, but what happened was a negotiated transition, right? And the negotiated should negotiated transition occurred um, through 
the efforts of each side to attend to the fears of the other. And so there's a famous story of uh, two of the negotiators, um, Cyril Ramaphosa for the ANC and uh, Rolf Meyer, I believe it was, for the South African government. Um, they, uh, Meyer invites Ramaphosa on a fishing trip. Ramaphosa got a fish hook stuck in his hand, in the, the palm of his hand. Uh, they couldn't get the, the fish hook out. Actually, I think it was Meyer who got it. I'm not sure. One of them got the fish hook stuck in their hand. They couldn't get the fish hook out, um, and they were in a remote location. Uh, they kept trying, and then one of them says to the other, you're just going to have to trust me, and, they, and the other yanks out the fish hook. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened is they had gone to this location this uh, to break through uh, a bottleneck or an impasse in the negotiations between the ANC and the South African government um, between the United Democratic Forces and the South African government. And they were able to break through in part because they got to know each other better. So that's personal Mm -hmm. empathy and shared hardship. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are other instances where this can happen on a sort of more institutional level through, you know, um, exchanges of diplomats and through conversations that are off the record. And this is, this is possible to achieve, but I think um, that that is too uh, kind of, uh, what's the word? It's difficult to, to move from that hostile, aggressive moment to one where you're trusting the enemy, the adversary enough to engage in that kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. And you have to build in structural opportunities for relationship building. There's a guy named uh, Nicholas Wheeler who's written about this. And there are other scholars who have been looking at di- different ways to, to institutionalize this relationship building. But I think it's sort of undeveloped in international relations theory and uh, politics more generally. And we need, you know, if we invested as much on this kind of work as we do on building weapons, I think we'd be a little further along in it. Mm-hmm. And then I gather there can be a grassroots dimension to this as well, to the to the empathy building. You know, you you hear about these things, I guess, but um, are they mainly at the level of NGOs? Uh, right. Well, partly nonviolent direct action works on the basis of empathy. So you you'll see thousands of people right now in Myanmar protesting the coup. And they're engaged in nonviolent direct action. And partly what they're trying to do is uh, relate to the military and police and get them to understand their position and not to want to use force against them. And they're also mobilizing through nonviolent direct action the sympathies of the world so that that people will come to their aid in whatever Mm -hmm. way they can. And so... Um, nonviolent direct action has actually resulted in a number of peaceful transitions. Uh, you know, for instance, in the Philippines, from the Marcos regime to a more democratic regime in the 1980s. Um, in, uh, let's see, many other cases, which I'm blanking on right now. There's, there's good work on this by, uh, let's see. 
Well, the Einstein Institute, uh, Gene mm-hmm. Sharp's Institute has some good information mm-hmm. about this. Gene Sharp wrote it about uh, wrote about cases of nonviolent direct action leading to political change. Mm-hmm. Have you? Notice that sometimes when people try to exercise empathy, even in the sense of cognitive empathy, toward a a, a ruler who's viewed as hostile, you kind of say, Let, let's view things, you know, from their point of view, it doesn't make sense to do this and this and, and, and that or something. That, that if you do that, you kind of immediately get blowback for being like an apologist or a, you know, I, I mean, it, it tends to be kind of a yeah a social cost you can pay, right? Right. No. Exactly. There, there are two kinds of costs. One is um, because we're a highly militarized society, we think that any kind of conversation, uh, non-military uh, outreach is is could be perceived as weakness and is in fact weakness when it's actually strength. Uh, it mm-hmm. takes courage to do that. Um, so there's on the one level. And the other level is um, often we don't understand the history of the previous relationship. For instance, we didn't really understand Vietnam as a country during the Vietnam War, you know, mm-hmm. how it was that the Vietnamese were treated by the French, then the Japanese, then by the French again, mm-hmm. and why they were uh, fighting for their independence. And we didn't understand um, Afghanistan. We still don't, probably. And often we don't understand the countries we're, we're at uh, odds with. or And the, um, that greater understanding can help us decide, you know, what kind of foreign policy we should have toward them. I think uh, um, there's also the fact that we don't understand our own domestic history that well either. So, for example, um, when people think about, you know, wanting to close the borders down between Mexico and the United States or um, uh not let immigrants in. We don't understand how our foreign policies have made the conditions that have led to people needing to transit the border and come or need to get somewhere better to get mm-hmm. a job, right? Or or perhaps we forget that the United States invaded Mexico, took half of Mexico's territory in 1848, and the, the uh, people who uh, were Mexicans are now living here, that, that, that this is a cultural relationship that well precedes um, the relationship that we have now where there's this hard border. Uh-huh. So I think understanding our history better and the history of our foreign policy better would help us have more empathy. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think, I mean, it's a pretty abstract question, but it, I, it's a bigger problem that, that, that sometimes we kind of don't, understand the cultural idiosyncrasies of places in other words way that ways they're different or or just that sometimes what we fail to understand is that actually they're just like us and if we would put ourselves in their shoes we would just see that you know people don't don't i i mean i have i'll tell you i have i have a specific example in mind it was uh after the iraq war uh after the invasion and uh we I guess, you know, they'd been going house to house, we, our, our troops, to, to root out a, uh, 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 Sodom sympathizers or something. And and they would take, if they were suspicious of, of a householder, they, they would take the, the guy who was the head of the house out, 
he would be meltdown, his hands are tied, he's blindfolded in front of his family. And and we were either encouraging or allowing video of this to be shown in Iraq, I mean. I think maybe we thought it would show people they shouldn't mess with us or something. And it got a lot of blowback in Iraq. And I remember the, the commanding general, I think his name was Sanchez, the guy who was doing that, said after a while he realized it wasn't having it a good, good effect. And he said, apparently in this culture, like... This is really like frowned on. If you're the, if you're humiliated in the eyes of your family, it's a bad thing. And I, and I was thinking like, in what culture is it not a bad thing to be humiliated in the eyes of your, I, I, it just seems to me so often it wouldn't take all that much imagination or just the idea of like, you know, even if you don't like your government, how often are you going to be eager to have a foreign army come in and occupy your country? Even that kind of thought experiment? Uh, does this question make sense? It, it seems to me so often the perspective taking is not that challenging or shouldn't be. And yet, right? Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think that um, people are like us and they're not like us. But mm-hmm. the, the more we know about the history of ourselves and a place, I think the the better or more likely it is that the interaction will go better. Mm-hmm. Do um, you see signs of, of progress like uh, along any dimension? I mean, are people, uh, are they taking advantage of technologies to understand people better or are, is there, is there anything we should be uh, encouraged about? I think two things. One is, you see increased use of nonviolent direct action techniques, which are quite sophisticated mm-hmm. and um, they're having some success at preventing regimes from doing the worst or changing regimes. Um, we'll see, you know, if, if people can maintain the discipline that is required when they do nonviolent direct action so that they don't draw the state into uh, violent now, 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 what's an example of, of just to concretize that kind of of nonviolent direct action? Okay, um, there's a there's a famous photograph of the Black Lives Matter movement where a young woman is standing in front of police. She's in a dress and she has a flower and she's holding the flower out to the uh, mil- very heavily militarized police person, and they're not aggressive with her. Mm-hmm. So what she's doing is she she's showing herself to be not a threat. So then don't hurt me. Mm-hmm. Um, nonviolent direct action was, you know, the civil rights movement in the United States in many instances, uh, basically, you know, taking whatever uh, verbal abuse, sometimes physical abuse, but maintaining the discipline of not reacting and using um, moral force as your only force and thereby getting more sympathy and understanding of your uh, plight. Okay. Um, okay. And the other thing I think that's happening is that, uh, you know, there, there are basically counter trends here. One is it, we have a lot of militarism and militarization in the world, right? Um, the United States is highly militarized. And on the other hand, we have a resurgence of democratic practices, and I'm I'm quite optimistic on some days that um, that the people practicing locally, regionally, um, 
methods of nonviolent dispute resolution or working in their local governments um, or working in cooperatives are changing the politics and the economics of their situation. That, that they're actually um, democratizing and they're thereby making things more peaceful. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you have the idea that the only way to uh, get what you want is to use force and um, things aren't going the way you want, then you feel desperate and may take up weapons. And we saw that at the Capitol on the 6th of January this year. If you have the idea that there are other methods for dispute resolution and you have confidence in them and then you're more likely to use those. Okay. Okay. So uh, when we started out, I asked you how much time you had. You said 30 minutes. And I said, oh, yeah. I may, you know, and you said, well, max 45. We're at 45. Do you have time for one more quick question sure, before I let you go? So yeah. um, it's, uh, it's just, you know, historically uh, uh, a problem if you're trying to generate a lot of grassroots activism against military intervention or, or, um, or to influence military policy at all has been that most of the time, it seems like most Americans don't care that much about it. In other words, it's not like tax policy. Everybody has a view on like income tax rates and stuff. And there's all these forces marshaled to lobby about it and, and so on. With foreign policy, it seems to be the case that with any given issue, any given country in the Middle East or China or something, most most voters just aren't thinking about it that much. And as a result, uh, small kind of tightly focused interest groups influence policy like a lot. And and so and, and sometimes for long periods of time, there is no very influential uh, set of interest groups that are that are focused on trying to um, th- that are kind of against militarism. Do you. Do you sense that we are now at a time when there actually is more organized opposition to militarism than there has been? Or do you, do you sense any, any trend in this, in this way at all compared to recent decades? I don't know, but I do, do think that we see increased activism in the United States anyway, Mm -hmm. and probably in many other countries in the last decade or so. And I think um, even more uh, post 2016 when Trump was elected. And I, I see the, on the one hand, that being caused by uh, sort of a fear of democratic erosion of an authoritarian figure of somebody who um, really needed to be responded to urgently. But there's also this deeper upwelling of um, interest in democratic decision-making and in change that's driven by climate change itself. So climate change has, has radicalized or at least opened the eyes of especially the young, but other people as well. And they're got their eyes open in two directions. You know, one direction is they see that, um, if we don't change our ways, the world's going to hell in a handbasket much faster than anybody predicted, especially post-2018 when the U- United Nations uh, climate change report said we have to keep warming below 1.5 degrees C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing that they see is there's a lot of things we can do. They have hope. 
right? They, they see hope in economic transition. They see hope in the democratization of uh, power, that is electrical power, right? So if you give people solar power, they're less dependent on the big power companies. Or uh, And if you give them uh, cheaper power, which solar and wind will be, they can be more innovative. Mm-hmm. And there's there's all sorts of potential there in terms of power. There's also potential in terms of changing agriculture. And the youth are interested in agriculture that produces less greenhouse gas and and healthier food and better environments. So I think we're in a renaissance right now of democracy, in part driven by this sort of deeper concern about climate. Okay. Well, we will leave it uh, on a hopeful note. Thank you. Now, is there any place online you would direct people to go? I mean, obviously, they can they can Google your name, Nita Crawford, N-E-T-A Crawford, and, and they can Google the Cost of War Project. Are there a- anything you want to mention in the way of a Twitter feed or website or anything? I don't do any of that stuff. You don't? All right. I just <laughs> – I believe in the long form. So, okay. But, yes, you can go to the Cost of War Project. Okay. Great. Well, thank you uh, so much for, for uh, taking the time. I know that uh, one uh, cause for your time constraint is you have to go uh, liberate your dog. And I I'm do. In fa- I'm in favor of that, so I'll let right. you get to that. Thanks right. a lot. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.